1: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: What matters most? What do we need to change? It's different for everyone. You're listening to Short Black with me, Sandra Sully. Good women, great chat. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com spoken today. And is passionate about content. No surprise then that she's made it her career. She's been a familiar face at Network 10 for nearly 15 years. Beverly McGarvey, welcome to Short Black. Your new title is Chief Content Officer and Executive Vice President, CBS Viacom Australia and New Zealand. That is a mouthful.
1: It is a mouthful. Nobody will probably ever say it again. I think they'll probably just, you know, shorten it, abbreviate
0: it. In colloquial terms, really, you're the Head of Content and Programming at Network 10 for our Australian listeners. You've been in the role for quite some time now. I've
1: been in this role for seven years, but I've been head of programming and director of content and those sorts of things in the business
0: for almost 14 years. Now, I read in your bio you, as a child, a young lass from Belfast, was completely obsessed with television, and that's driven just about everything you've ever done. I
1: think so. I think growing up in Belfast in the 70s was great. It wasn't what you might think it was, but it wasn't super glamorous. So, being able to watch TV was kind of a proper escape and gave you an insight into the world and I really enjoyed watching TV and despite what my mother thought, it actually did lead to a career. Watching TV did pay off for me. What was your entry point into the world of television? I did a degree in media and that led to an internship in a newsroom actually. So I worked at the newsroom for UTV in Belfast in the mid to early 90s and in those days it was kind of towards the end of the ceasefire and the newsroom was still fairly intense. It was proper terrorist type news it wasn't gentle news and I spent a bit of time there and thought this is really interesting but I would like a career that is broader because this is not my exact sweet spot of where I want to spend my entire career. I worked as a runner so I ran scripts up and down to the newsreaders. I also answered phones and in those days because the people who answered the phones in the newsroom were still taking calls about bomb scares And they would have to contact the police and decide whether they were a real call or not. So you had to be actually trained to do that and work out whether you needed to pass that information on. So that was interesting. I worked in our sports department and then I worked in our promos department. So I kind of just did a bit of everything to really work out what I wanted to do. How did you end up
0: in programming then specifically?
1: Almost by accident. I worked as a promo producer and a creative director. And um, I worked in, by this time I was working in Dublin when I was a creative director And I was quite confident and bolshy as a 26 year old and thought that I should absolutely be in charge of something (laughs) because I didn't know enough to know that I didn't know enough. So I always wanted to be, you know, the director of programming because I felt like they made the decisions about what shows would be on and what shows you would produce. And I find that really interesting. And no matter how you looked at everything in the business, that decision making capability was something that I thought that's really exciting. So I was kind of quite pushy in terms of wanting to have that opportunity. And um, the company that I worked for, which was an Irish free d air broadcaster, was owned by a Canadian company. And so my Canadian boss, after putting up with me for a while, went, "Okay, great, I have a director programming job for you, but it's in New Zealand. And I just thought, great, that sounds lovely. I'd never been on a long haul flight, but I took the job in New Zealand. They flew me down. They'd offered me the job, but flew me down so that I could check it out, make sure that I liked it. And it was a very long flight from Dublin. And New Zealand was amazing. It was a great company and I worked with great people. And I really love New Zealand. It's a really beautiful country and not super dissimilar to Ireland. Or Australia. A great, or Australia, absolutely. And I didn't. I had never been in Australia then because I was flying through Sydney to get to Auckland often, but had never had the opportunity to stop. And I did try and stop once and realised that my visa did not cover me to actually even leave the airport. So I didn't even get into Sydney that time. And then I was transferred effectively. It's slightly more complex than that, but I was effectively transferred from TV3 to Channel 10 in the Cam days because that was our Canadian owner ad work in three of their markets. I was brought here as head of programming 14
0: years ago and kind of just worked my way through. It's kind of unusual for someone to have such grand ambitions at a young age. Where do you think that came from?
1: I have no idea. My mother's dream for me was that I would get a job in a bank because in Belfast, in those days, in the area that I lived, that was the absolute pinnacle of having a really secure job that was kind of in a safe environment. And you know, we should all make our children work. But I went out to work when I was about 13 and the equivalent of Woolies. And I was so bored. I thought I really have to study and do something because I don't want to do this all the time. It was great. It was a great way to learn. And I met lovely people. And it was a great way to, you know, understand how to have a decent work ethic. But I didn't want to be doing that forever. I wanted to do something else. So television felt like it was glamorous and exciting and also There were great stories and you got really engaged in it and it took you away from your world a little bit into different things and I think that just appealed to me from a very young age and also I'm lucky that I had quite a feisty mother. Nobody ever really went, oh no, you can't do that. They were like, you should do this, but not that you couldn't do it. I always thought I'd be limited by opportunities in Belfast because it's small and it is small, but UTV gave me a great kind of step on the ladder to be able to do other things and it was a really lovely company. It's part of the ITV network, it's still there, it still exists and local TV and does really well in smaller markets so it's still doing really well. So that's kind of I think where I ended up where I am.
0: Most people would presume to be a director of programming and content at any network broadcaster, you have to have an innate understanding of the culture that you're living in. How did you acclimatise in New Zealand and in Australia and how do you find that space so that you're confident you can deliver what your audience wants, what we want?
1: That's a really good question.
0: You do need to
1: understand the culture that you live in and I think what I know now that I didn't quite know back in the day was I think it takes a year, realistically these days probably two, to come from somewhere and work at a TV station or work on a show or work in entertainment generally and understand the culture of the audience that you're in it was slightly different between Ireland and New Zealand my experience of New Zealand is that it was quite British so it wasn't a big leap from a kind of Northern Irish Irish and I'd worked in the UK a British TV culture they watch a lot of British TV in New Zealand in those days whereas Australian TV was Australian but their secondary viewing options back then were really American and that was not true where I had grown up People still now say to me things like, had you seen such and such a show or such and such a show? And I'm like, that didn't play in Ireland when I was growing up. Those American sitcoms and all those things. The first American sitcom I remember is Friends. That's the first thing I remember playing on Irish television. So I think New Zealand was easy. It was a bit harder coming to Australia. The other thing is, it does matter in terms of what makes you tick as being an Australian. But for example, when you're commissioning drama and there's all this dialogue about, you know, making Australian stories for Australian people. That is really important and that is true. But when you wake up in the morning, when you woke up this morning, the first thing you did not think is, I'm Australian. You think, well, I go to the gym or stay in bed for an extra half an hour. Will I have a coffee? Do I have to drop the kids to school? There's a universal life experience that I think human beings have, particularly in you know, a developed Western country, that are quite similar and I think that's actually at the front of what makes people tick. You know, we play shows like The Bachelor. It's about love. It's about fantasy. It's about that fairy tale. They're universal themes. So you do need to understand the cultural nuances of being Australian, especially in sport. But there's also a universal thing that I think translates in many markets, which is why I think people can move around. There's a lot of really great British producers, etc., that work here. And I know there's lots of amazing Australians working in the UK and the US. So you can make the move. It just You need to know what you don't know and you don't know. When people come here, they think they know everything about
0: the culture and then about a year or two later, they go, okay, now I get it. Do you remember those early days when you first arrived and what really struck you, what stood out as being quintessentially Australian? The first thing that struck me was the obsession
1: with sport. (laughs) Um, I lived in Dublin close enough to Lansdowne Road that I could hear the roar of the crowd. And in New Zealand, we used to do our board meetings at Eden Park. So I was used to being in countries and companies where sport was a focus. But back in those days, 10 had AFL. And the thing that I didn't get at the beginning was not just sport, but also this state supports this sport and this state supports that sport. So when we were putting together the sporting schedules and the AFL schedules, that would be like, well, play this game in Sydney and this game in Brisbane and this game in Melbourne. And also, which sounds ridiculous to somebody who didn't grow up here, the time zone thing. In Ireland, it's always the same time. (laughs) Everybody has the same time all the time. So those differences. And also Australia is a federated nation and that really matters in things like news. So all of those things were probably the things that struck me, but they didn't strike me straight away, to be honest. It took me a while to realise that I needed to get on top of those things and know those things. And in those days, I worked for the director of programming and we had another programmer in the team as well. And I was lucky enough to have people to learn
0: from. So you learned on the way through yeah. and, and found the time and, and took the time to work out what was important. Absolutely. And then after
1: being here for a while, you kind of find yourself assimilating into the culture. And when I go home now, people think I'm really Australian, which I find really odd because I think I don't sound really Australian. My family think I do and they think I say Australian things. And also things like, and this does matter when you're making shows like Survivor, Australians are really competitive and really sporty and really full of energy. So when we're putting together challenges for things like Survivor, they have got to be hard. Um, they have got to be harder than they are for other countries. When we make I'm a Celebrity, we shoot it in Africa. We couldn't shoot it where the UK show was made on the Gold Coast because Australians just aren't afraid of the Gold Coast. Um, so we have to kind of up the ante because Australians, ha- it's lots of A-type personalities and really athletic, physical people. Those, I think they're quite uniquely Australian things and very different to Ireland. There is no Irish survivor. I don't think anybody would apply.
0: It's not a thing. <laughs> it's very different. How do you describe yourself in terms of nationality?
1: Probably Northern Irish. Irish. It's such a thing. If you grew up in Northern Ireland, I have a British passport. I could have an Irish passport. I should get that because of the whole EU Brexit thing. But if you grew up in Northern Ireland, you tend to think of yourself as Northern Irish or British or Irish or some combination thereof. It's quite complicated. So when people hear my accent, they just think, oh, you're Irish, and I say, yes, I am.
0: You've probably been asked this a million times, but what's a typical day in the life of Beverly McGarvey?
1: I wake up with my kids when they wake up, which is about half, five, quarter to six, and I make their lunch, I make their breakfast, I put out their uniforms and then I dump them in the bath and then I either come to work or go to the gym. My partner's there and he will take them to school every day, which is great because a school drop off takes a bit of time. And I, I'm sorry that I don't get to do that. I don't miss doing it every day, but it's nice to do it once in a while. And I do try to do that, but I generally don't. And then I come to work and anybody who works in TV would know this, but the kind of punctuation mark of our day is getting ratings. So I get some stuff done early in the morning And then at nine o'clock we get ratings and that kind of sets the tone of the day in a way that it probably shouldn't because we do need to be thinking of big picture and long term. But a show that's a massive hit or a massive disaster does colour what happens for the rest of the day, especially if you have a launch episode or a finale episode and that sort of thing. And then I tend to just move through my day meeting with people like today. So far we've had a casting meeting for the next series of Survivor with a production company, pitched us who the cast will be and what the theme of the series might be and what that might look like. Those sorts of things are really interesting. Without giving any
0: secrets away, what's a casting meeting like?
1: Well, by the time it comes to me, lots of clever people have done lots of work. So they have been on a tour. A casting tour for a show like Survivor could be over a month long. So people apply online, then they're pre-interviewed. Eventually they will get into a room to meet a producer and a casting team or a range of producers and a casting team. And then they make decisions about... It's not just about any particular individual, but more about the group of people that you put together that you want to make sure that the group works, that you have particularly interesting people or people who are peacemakers or people who are provocateurs, whatever that is. And then when it's pitched eventually at this session, it's pretty fixed. It would be very rare for us to go, no, we don't want that person. And then we look at them as a group and think, who's interesting? Who would we put in a promo? But also who'll come through in the middle of the series? Who will kind of be under the radar? You try and look at it in quite a holistic way and you're looking for different things for different people, but also what's different than what came before, what feels fresh and what's surprising. You know, if you look at a particular contestant and you think, oh, you look like you might be on Love Island, but actually you're an actuary and you're on Survivor. I think that sort of thing's interesting that everything
0: isn't what it appears to be. I think people like some surprises. What's the skill set of those talent producers? I'm always curious about the people that make the decisions.
1: The talent producers are a range of actual producers who have to go on the island and make the show, but also casting. So in-house at the minute, we have a casting director who works at 10. And her particular expertise is kind of twofold. She is a producer, but she also has just cast a lot of shows. She knows a lot of people. And also she kind of just has a bit of uh, an insight into human psychology and that she will go, this person, they're maybe too vulnerable or they're pretending to be something that they're not. This isn't really who they are. We need to dig a bit deeper. And then once you get past all of those things, you get to your point in all of the big shows, all of the networks would do this, that you get to position where you're looking at people's you know psychological profile and you're making sure that people don't have a criminal record and all of that sort of thing the things that you need to do to ensure the health and well-being of the rest of the cast and the team and all of that sort of thing and the individuals themselves so employ psychologists to determine those profiles yeah all production companies would hire psychologists On a show like I'm a Celebrity, we would have psychologists on
0: the ground. It makes sense. But, you know, from a viewer's perspective, you just don't really understand the degree of investment that you have for a show like, for example, I'm a Celebrity. I mean, what's your lead time? How many months out before they actually go into the jungle? So I'm a
1: Celebrity. We would start talking about the season that will air next January, probably in April. The initial conversations would be around, let's start thinking about casting. How do we do it differently this year? How do we make it different and interesting to previous years, but also about challenges? Because celebrity, you want the big visual challenges, but also the funny little challenges. So about April, people will start thinking about that in the production company side, and then they'll start pitching to us. And I'm Celebrity Meetings are great fun because those challenges are a bit bonkers, and the people who put them together are so excited about the bonkersness of them, they pitch them really well. And also then, towards the end... So you kind of go through the year. What we tend to do, our rhythm is kind of, with our big shows, we tend to have either fortnightly whips or weekly whips. As you get closer to TX, we have weekly whips and our network EP. TX meaning transmission. Yeah, TX meaning transmission. And then we'll have a recce in Africa probably in about July, August. Those recces usually happen to say, because it's actually in a national park. So we have to, we let it all grow over every year. Then we go back and kind of fix it up so that we can shoot there again. So we need to assess what needs to be done. And... Also look at where are we going to do the walk-ins this year. So it kind of iterative and it goes through the year on a show like that. Different types of shows have different processes. Once you get towards the end, people that may be committed might want to pull out. If people want to pull out of a show, no matter what their contractual position is, we would tend to let them. We don't want people to do something they don't want to do. Once you get up into the jungle for celebrity, depending on what day and what part of the series is, there's over 300 people working on it. And which I think people don't see. And a lot of those people are there to protect the celebrities. Obviously, there's all the production people there, but there is security there. There's doctors, there's psychologists, because when you're in that sort of closed environment, we need to make sure that, of course, we're making a piece of entertainment, but we have to look after people's health and well-being. And we have risk assessors and all those sorts of things and catering. It's massive which I think people don't see but is quite interesting. And a
0: big part of the job, when you talk about celebrities, it's always fascinating to see the group you arrive at. How do you convince celebrities to go on shows like Dancing with the Stars or I'm a Celebrity or Survivor?
1: To be honest, we don't try and coerce people and it's not about the money. It is for some people, but if you don't want to go on Celebrity, not for a million dollars could I do that. I could not be that close to snakes and spiders. I couldn't do it. But if you're the sort of person that could do it, you're kind of up for it and it feels like it's fun. Really interestingly, what we experienced this year, I think you would think that dancing feels easier than celebrity. And we're casting both shows at the same time generally. This year we had people who were really out for celebrity. It's a month. It's closed. You're in and you're out. But dancing scares people more because you've got to train. You've got to kind of stand out there in a sparkly dress and do it live. That really scares people. So interestingly, some people we phoned and said, we'd really love you to go in the jungle. they go... Uh, No, I don't know about that. I I might go in the jungle, but I won't do dancing, which really surprised me this year because it feels like the jungle should be scarier. It's just not. Survivor people, different type of personality altogether. They want it to be hard. When people go into celebrity, they kind of go, oh, do we stay in a hotel? Um, Do we get something to eat? And we're surprised they think that we're like, no, you don't go in a hotel and we don't give you stuff to eat. It is what it is. But in Survivor, the people who want to be in Survivor, they're like, I promise us you won't give us anything to eat. And there's definitely no shelter. They want it to be hard. They're just the sort of people that want to have that Survivor experience. So everything's different. Singer Singer's different again. It appeals to people that like the craziness of it, but also the anonymity of it. If you speak to any of last year's contestants, they talk about how liberating it was to come out and not be yourself and kind of let loose
0: and nobody knew who you were. That appeals to a certain type of person as well. When we look at the Australian television landscape, the industry's tough and change is constant, it's constantly evolving. I mean, your job really is to draw as many eyeballs as you can across numerous platforms. How challenging has it been coming to grips with the evolution of the digital world? It is challenging and I think obviously the
1: 3D Air business is structurally challenged. What hasn't changed is that people want to watch content I think the thing that we need to all be better at as an industry is ensuring that we serve that content however people want to see it, whether it be on Template or on All Access or one of our linear channels, is serving it to them how they want to see it and also understanding how we monetize that because no matter what show you watch, somebody made it, somebody produced it, and it cost a lot of money. So to just pay for that, that pure balance of economics is the thing that's slightly out of kilter at the moment, and we need to kind of tip it back into a more even place. And if you look at businesses like Netflix that are spending $10 million on an hour of television when not that long ago that's feature film money, you cannot compete with that. Like, we cannot spend $10 million on one hour of content. So therefore, how do we compete with that? And we compete for example, by genre. So live things, news, but also things like, have you been paying attention? Because it's really Australian and quite uniquely Australian, really. So that appeals to our audience. And the genre means that it's producible at the right rate. So I think we probably, as an industry, were slow to realise that people were going to continue to watch shows, but not the way that we wanted them to. And now we're making sure that we catch up to that. A lot of our audience watch our shows on Template, particular genres, particularly shows like Bachelor, Bachelor in Paradise, kind of a fifth of their
0: audience might be on template now and that's going to only increase we know most millennials if not generation Z, never grew up watching tv like you and i did you know every household is dispersed people are watching whatever they want to watch on screens and devices and tvs in various rooms that's got to be the current dilemma i would have thought
1: it is the current dilemma and i think there's a range of answers to it people don't sit and watch shows together sometimes they do and that is the holy grail so something like Mass Singer we got family audiences to watch which is amazing because advertisers really value that and also it's the sort of thing you don't want to watch by yourself because you want to talk to the person beside you and go you know is Sandra under that mask I don't know you want to have that conversation. Things that are live do that for us. But also you do want to put something like Bachelor on that maybe one member of the household will watch and another member of the household won't watch. So somebody will watch Bachelor on the main screen and somebody may go and watch Play on another screen. It is just about making sure that you're at all the right places in terms of getting younger audiences to watch our shows. Will they watch 3 TV? Possibly not but they might watch Survivor or they might watch The Bachelor or they might watch Paw Patrol or Teen Mom on MTV. So it's really about making sure that the show brands are as famous as the channel brands so that people will search out the content and they might hear, oh, I hear such and such a show is great. They type it into Google and they find out they can watch it on or all access. So I think it's about making really good shows because when people have so much choice, they will only watch something good. And even if it's not The genre that you like, and it may not be a reality show that you like or whoever likes, it has to be a really good version of what it is so that people will talk about it and seek it out. And the other thing that we've learned from running research in recent times is in terms of streaming services and how many streaming services people have, it is slightly age dependent, as you would expect, but it's also socioeconomic. There will be people, of course, who do not want to spend their small amount of disposable income, pen money for all of these extra services, and if we can provide a service where we provide a free linear channel and then an advertiser supported catch up service, they can watch all of the content they want when they want without having to commit $120 a year, or $300 a year, or whatever it is. So it isn't just about age, it's also about life cycle and socioeconomic things. It's kind of more complex than you would think superficially.
0: I feel like there'll be another shakedown soon in terms of the number of offerings that are out there. I mean, there's so much content across so many different apps and platforms that if you can't find it in one place, it's just a zoo. Absolutely. And that the curation
1: point is really important. So when you think about 3DR TV, people used to kind of come home, they'd have three choices or five choices or whatever amount of choices, a limited amount of choices. And the lead in was really important. Scheduling was really important. And those things still do matter. When you look at ratings, a big show that has another show off the back of it, the second show does well. Scheduling still matters. But curation is a really important skill. How do you make it easy for people? How do you personalise things? So if we know that you like watching The Crime on Netflix, what else are you likely to watch and how do we serve that? And in terms of our template business, that personalization so that we serve you stuff that is interesting to you at the right time is really important. Also, in a more complex way, it's how we craft, for example, our dramas. And this would be more relevant in the streaming space. But what we know now is that people tend to watch three episodes of something, which ironically is old school primetime duration. So people will still watch three-ish hours of TV in a night. So therefore, if you're only going to binge watch three hours and not watch 20 hours, which isn't a thing... We need arcs that don't just arc at the end of the episode, but we need a story arc that arcs at the end of a three-episode cycle as well as at the very end of the series so it actually affects the writing and the construction of the series so that we're giving people reasons to come back. You've watched your three eps of whatever it is, but come back tomorrow or next week and watch another three. And that constantly changes that behaviour and patterns constantly change and evolve, so we just need to make sure that we're constantly on top of
0: that. One of the really wonderful surprises, I think, in the last couple of years has seeing the success of Gogglebox. On paper, who would ever have sunk that that show would work? And yet it is a standout. It absolutely is. And I think
1: one of the really interesting things at the minute is what really works in terms of local television are things that are authentic, things that have familiar cast. So if you think of Have You Been Paying Attention and Gogglebox, they're kind of the same people every week and topicality. So in terms of not watching shows on your streaming services what really pops, as well as the big reality franchises, which do a different job altogether. For us, it's things that have familiar faces that are topical and also that are snackable. So I think at half eight, it's never half eight, it's quarter to nine usually or nine (laughs) o'clock by the time you get to those shows, I think you have this moment in your head that you go, should I watch this or go to bed or go and do something else? And you go, oh, you know, I'll just watch the first bit of Gogglebox or I'll watch the first segment of Hyper because it's funny and I like it and it's familiar. But then the show sucks you in, whereas I think if you sit down at that time of night and go, this is a 90 minute commitment, you might not make it at nine o'clock. So it's really just about understanding that that's the thing. Now, whereas people used to be very committed to watching narrative content at that time of the evening, and they're probably watching it on the streamers now, we can't quite tell where people go once they leave our environment, but we can tell from other statistics that it's likely that's where we're going. So therefore, we have to utilize our narrative content in different places.
0: What's been the biggest surprise to you in the last year or two when it comes to Australian television? I mean, maths is is a juggernaut. It was quite confronting, non-family friendly. As a programmer, how do you combat a juggernaut like that?
1: Well, maths is a really interesting point. It's actually in year five or six. Is it? It is. But you kind of don't know that because they started it on Tuesday nights, one hour a week, and then it was like Monday, Tuesdays. They've built it into that it's been only a juggernaut for a couple of years, which is interesting that it really only seeped into the consciousness at a certain point, And very clever and well done to Nine for having the foresight to back it and get it to where it is now audience wise. We had a few falters last year in Q1. Maths was you know, like kind of knocking everything down in its path. So when we looked forward to this year and thought, how do we combat maths? How do we actually be competitive against maths, which is so important in this first quarter of the year in terms of your sales and audiences? It had to be multi-night because Australian audiences are really committed to multi-night shows. Putting something on one hour a week doesn't really get you through that heavy Sunday, Monday, Tuesday traffic. So it has to be multi-night. It has to be, we think, something that they know because something new against maths, it's got such a mountain to climb. And if it's got to be multi-night and it's got to be against MAFs, then it's constructed reality. And if it's got to be constructed reality, it cannot appeal to the same audience as MAFs and MKR. So it's got to be a different type of reality show, which is why Moose Five and into Q1. But Survivor is in year five, that's season five. So it's taken us a long time to build up Survivor so that Survivor has the kind of strength to go up against maths. It's kind of like playing the long game. We played Survivor off the back of MasterChef for the last number of years and it built its audience and it played in winter and there's higher sets in use and it became strong enough. If we put Survivor against maths in year one, it would have got completely annihilated.
0: I would have thought one of the strengths of Survivor is the family friendliness appeal. Do you know, I would think that too, but the family audiences are watching maths. And I don't know why.
1: I don't mean I don't know why, but that is the thing. Younger people are watching maths. Survivor does really well and it does appeal to broader audiences, but it would be not true to say that family audiences
0: are not watching maths. As we both wince. Because the content is pretty raunchy and confronting. Yeah, I'm not being a prude when I say that. I mean, I've watched maths and the, and the drama and content is very engaging, but it's very easy, isn't it, to get caught up in the story uh, that's and exactly the next it. chapter.
1: Yeah, I think people watch it like they would have previously watched strip soap opera. I think you're exactly right. You get caught into it. And the storytelling is what pulls you in and it's very sticky. And those people are clever that it's not an accident. The same production
0: company that make maths make Survivor and make
1: Masterchef. They're very clever storytellers.
0: A big risk for 10 was rolling out Masterchef with three new judges.
1: I've said this a few times and I, I genuinely mean it. Given the landscape that we're in now, I would be more nervous if we hadn't made the change. And with the greatest respect to George and Gary and Matt, they did an amazing job and they were at the front of that show for 11 years and more seasons than 11. We did some spin-offs, And that's incredible. When you think of things like The Voice, those casts, one or two of them turn over almost every year. So to go 11 years is incredible. But to have the opportunity to introduce new talent was really quite a luxury and quite an opportunity. And the talent that we've landed on are phenomenal. They're very different to who we had before. Jock is incredibly credentialed and very charismatic and a very experienced chef that has amazing advice to give. Andy is MasterChef alumni. He has stood on the other side of that and knows what it feels like, as well as being a very accomplished chef and restaurateur. That gives him that empathy that's really interesting. And Mel, as a food writer, critic, businesswoman, is really interesting. She's very different to what we've had before. She's feisty and opinionated and incredibly articulate and intelligent about food. So collectively, they're great. They have nice
0: chemistry. You describe Jock as very charismatic. And yet those sorts of attributes are very subjective. Mm -hmm. That must be when tools like focus groups come in because it just can't be your guts that says he's going to work. How do you decide who works and who doesn't? What works and what doesn't? With
1: people, it's incredibly hard. And also focus groups are really useful, but they are a tool because certain people polarise. So certain people, you could put them into your focus group and everybody will go, no, I don't like them, but they'll watch them on TV. So being liked and being charismatic doesn't necessarily mean that you will be watched or you won't be watched. But television is about having people who have charisma and X factor and something that you can't quite put your finger on. So if you're just looking at scores and focus groups, you would discount some great people and probably overly lean towards other people. So absolutely, it's definitely not just you going, yeah, Jock's very charismatic. It's more about he's done the show before, the audience responded well to him. When you look at him with Andy and Mel, that that trio works really well. What sort of questions do you ask the focus groups when they come in? Very broad ranging. It depends what we're actually trying to find out. It would be things like, would you like to see more or less of this person on TV? You know, would you watch this if they weren't in it? Those types of things. But it's also, and I am a a very probably annoying executive to pitch to from a focus group because I kind of pick it at all. But I think part of the issue with it is and why you have to take it with a grain of salt and apply your own knowledge and experience to it is if you ask people, would you rather have pizza or vegetables, they'll say vegetables and salad. Or would you rather watch a documentary or a soap opera? They're going to pick a document. They tell you what they think you want to hear. And also in a focus group, you can get a very vocal person who leads the group. So a focus group only tells you one thing and you have to use other measures to complement valuable other data and also insight and experience and layer that all together. And again, it still might not work. It is not a perfect science. And there's also a tonal thing and a timing thing. And somebody who's zeitgeisty right now, that might not be true in three years and it might not have been true three years ago. So it's just about watching all of the evidence and making sure that you've got everything right right now and acknowledging that that might not be right next year.
0: How often in a year would you use focus groups? And do you use focus groups in every Cap City? We don't use them
1: in every Cap City for every project. We tend to use them for different things. We kind of use focus groups almost all year, like every month for something. We do post analysis on our major franchises. For a show like Celebrity, which I think people are surprised by, we do ongoing focus groups as the show is on air. So, for example, when the show is on air live, we actually test it every single day because the ratings tell us one thing. But focus groups tell us another thing. Is there enough physical challenges? Would you like to see more animals? Is this person getting enough screen time? Are you enjoying watching this person? Because we can actually improve it as we go. Now, that is not a luxury that you often have. And we kind of do it with celebrity almost as a exercise in how do you react? And even if we don't change the show, we might change the promo. So, this person's really resonating today. So, we will make
0: sure that they are at the front of the promo today. It's all about teasing a show and teasing out that storyline. The promo department, Inside Programming, that's a specialist unit all of its own, isn't it? Mm, it is. And we have an excellent promo team. I think the getting
1: the promos right here in this market is really a particular skill because there's quite a hard sell in Australia. And as we've talked about, we're part of a new entity now and we report into London and they have a free day broadcaster there. And British promos are so much more gentle. They're a bit more. Would you mind watching this if you have time next Tuesday? And ours are watch this. It's the greatest show on earth. Your life will be so much better if you watch it. So just getting that positioning right. Also, what we find over the years and with great creative directors, we have to be authentic and we cannot overpromise. And last season of Survivor, towards the end, we always do this thing where we just about to launch a show. We kind of spin it one last time to make sure that we've got the best value out of it. And a lot of people at 10 are actual Survivor fans as well as it being a professional interest. And towards the end, we have a ratings meeting every day and someone said, I think it's the best season ever. And we would never say that sort of thing about a show because it's usually not true. If we, you're honest. If you're, it could, everything can't be the best season ever. But that season of Survivor, we kind of went, it is actually the best season ever, let's say at this time, because it's true. And within 24 hours, all of our marketing and communication had changed to that message. And we had a great launch for that season of Survivor. But it's also about just being authentic and knowing what the audience wants. And it's also about having a really simple message. Or with Celebrity this year, it was just about Chris and Julia being funny with Miguel. Because everybody knows what the show is. We're never going to tell you who the celebrities are. We're always going to say that it's, you know, an A-list movie star. And it's probably not going to be Nicole Kidman. Everybody's in on that joke. So you just need to make it funny. How much TV do you watch a week? I watch all of our shows, mostly off air. I try and go back. I tend to not be at home for news and the project. I try to go back later in the evening and watch a bit of our news and a bit of the project every day. You don't have to say that because I'm sitting here, but it is <laughs> not <enough> to hear. <laughs> and, and also on template, I try and watch more of our outside Sydney news. And then at the weekends, I, if I'm going to do any streaming and watch my guilty pleasure of the crime and that sort of thing, I tend to do that like on a Saturday night. I do watch a lot of TV and also I have little kids. And I so I watch a lot of Paw Patrol and Nella the Princess Night and Sophia the First and every episode of Bluey at least 54 times, which, thank goodness, is amazing because I have to watch so much of it. I'm really glad that it's such a beautiful show. So I do watch a lot of TV and I'm also one of those parents that kind of limits my kids' screen time but also thinking, but watch some TV, it's not that bad.
0: (laughs) So how do you switch off from the madness of your world and hone your gut, hone your own physical and mental, emotional radar so that you're confident about the decisions you're making and the direction you're taking the network? I don't know how I used to do it when I was younger but now that I'm
1: older and I have kids, I don't really have the luxury of making a conscious decision for my brain to be somewhere else. When I get home in the evening, there are two people who go, it is all about me. Look at my grazed knee. And did you get my cupcakes to take to school tomorrow? And last night I actually had to bring the cupcakes home because it's my daughter's birthday and they take cupcakes to school these days, which wasn't a thing when I was a kid. So as soon as I get home, I go, oh, I had quite a big day yesterday. We made this big announcement and it was a big thing and they don't care. They're like, talk about me, talk about my day. So it's all about them for that part of the evening, which is great. And people don't really call me at that time. And even though we, for example, would have the project on at that time, I'm in a luxurious position now that I had my children a bit later and I'm a bit more senior, that I have enough of a structure and support professionally around me that people tend not to call me between 6.30 and 7.30 unless it is a crisis. If I see somebody calling me at that time, I know they really want to talk to me. I'm so lucky that and I know that I'm lucky that I'm in that position. I also don't take calls during that time unless I know it's critical. I won't just let people chat.
0: You've earned the right to say that you're lucky. What sort of messages would you say to other men and women in an executive leadership role um, really help you do what you do?
1: I think you have to have a number of people you can really trust, probably about three. And you mentioned this earlier, but in my job, everybody has an opinion. The more senior you get in probably any industry and any organization, you find that people tend to tell you what they think you want to hear and you don't get honest feedback. So you need a few people who will tell you the truth politely or not about anything. And you have to let them feel that they can do that and be comfortable to do that. It doesn't need to be a large number of people, but it needs to be people that you trust. So when they say you stop and think, OK, we're going off somewhere here, we're going in a wrong place. This isn't the right thing to do. So I'm lucky that I work with those people. And partly because I've been here a long time, I have relationships with people that are very skilled and we go back a while so we can have those honest conversations with each other. So that's important. Also, I think and I'm going to say these things and know that I am not perfect at them by any stretch you've got to say no to things and you've got to have rigour in your day and in your life I don't do dinners unless I absolutely have to if it's a dinner with 10 people I'll do it because you're kind of speaking to 10 people I won't go and have dinner with one person I'll have breakfast or lunch but I won't have dinner because a breakfast is an hour lunch is two hours and dinner is three hours so I try to be careful about that and that's only since I had kids but it actually gives you more time you you also have quite a bit of flexibility
0: in your routine don't you? I do. I have
1: flexibility in the routine, but so there's certain points of the day and things have to happen. I also, I have a great EA, so I have regular catch ups with people so that I always know what's going on. We tend to put structure around things like show meetings. In terms of going to shows and show records, you actually need to be engaged with the content, especially content that comes and goes like the Mass Singer. It's a, a very short record period. You could blink and miss it. And it's such an important part of the schedule. You need to make time to go and do those things. And also just to have relationships with people, to talk to people, to read trades, to work out what's going on in the rest of the world and to think about what's going on in Australia and to understand our audience and their lives and all of those things. You kind of have to live a bit of a life and not live in a bubble. And I probably do to a degree. So I think all of those things are important, but also to understand that we're making entertainment, we are not saving lives. And I think you have to have perspective. One bad night ratings is not the end of the world and you have to be able to go, okay, well, that was painful. How do we fix it and move on? And you have to be able to shake yourself off and not take it overly seriously, or it would become too much because it's relentless and you get it
0: every day. Our industry is well known as being largely you know, misogynistic. And I personally think that was more about yesterday than it is today. How do you see it? I agree with that. I actually spoke at a, an event at one of the advertisers about this
1: very issue. And The benefit to me was that I stepped into Australia when I was already senior. I came from a director of programming role in another market. And when I first got here, often people would say to me, oh, you're a programmer and you're female. And I would always think, I don't know what you're talking about. When I was in New Zealand, all the programmers were women. The CEOs were women. And in Ireland and in the UK, there were lots of women in those jobs. And I didn't quite get it. And then, and this was 14 years ago, I went to a dinner in L.A., the first L.A. screenings I went to with 10 and I was invited to a network dinner. And it was the programmers and the CEOs of all the networks. And I looked around the table and went, oh, no, I get it. Everyone else was male. That wouldn't be true anymore. Bit true, but not quite as true. But 10 um, has got a, you know, it's got great policies and... A good gender split. Really good gender split and lots of women in leadership roles and lots of, as you would know, we have all of our five state news anchors are female. And that's not because we were looking for five women. It's because the best people for those
0: jobs happened to be women at that time. I know why I think it's important that there's diversity in leadership positions, but why do you think it's important?
1: Oh, for a range of reasons. I think there has to be diversity in leadership. First of all, because I think of modelling and what comes next, you have to be able to see a pathway to what the future is going to look like. And when you look at that, you should see yourself in that, whether you're male or female or whatever other diversity issues that we have not addressed as well as even we have addressed the gender issue, which is not done. So I think that's really important. I also think for our business, and this is very particular to our business, when you think of your audience, 65% of the television audience is female. So to have only men making those decisions, and of course that doesn't mean that men cannot put themselves in other people's shoes. And I can't think about people who have differences to me, but I think it's important to more truly reflect the society that we're in. And also it probably happens to lots of people I always cared about it but now that I have a daughter I care a lot more because I care about the world that she grows up in. Even things like language I've become so much more aware of when my son first started school. He's only four but we sent him last year when he was three. We got him out there early and the first meeting that I went to at his school somebody asked, it was in January and they were starting school in February and somebody asked the question how do you get your son ready to be prepared for school? And the teacher answered well when it's the end of summer and daddy goes back to work then you know it's time for your son to go to school and even that language kind of Shocked me in this day and age, but I might not have noticed it five years ago. But when you're raising a boy and a girl, I think you're really conscious about the world that they will grow up in and what their behaviour should be and the opportunities
0: that you would like both of them to have. When you first had children, you took just six weeks off, and that was remarked upon widely, fairly or unfairly so.
1: It worked for me at the time, so I took, I probably didn't even take quite six weeks off with my daughter. She is six now and my son is four. I took less time off with him, not least because I was kind of on a rhythm. And this kind of job is you're either in it or you're not in it. And for me at the time, I thought it is harder to be out of it and try to come back in it. And also I was in a much different position then in the the company. And also I didn't have, for example, I have an incredibly strong 2IC now. It wasn't exactly the same back then. So if I had a chance to do it differently, would I take longer? Probably. I feel like I didn't know anybody well enough for somebody to say to me, that's a really stupid idea, you should take longer. It worked at the time and I was fine, but if I could change it and take longer, especially now the kids are at school and I think, oh, you're grown up, you go out in uniforms and you're really cheeky and you're not just a cuddly baby anymore. I wish that I'd taken a bit more of that. Did you sense any judgment at the time as a woman, as a as a first-time mum? Ah. <sighs> I only really worked out there was judgment years later. What I really felt a little bit obligated to do at that time, different management at 10 then, was to prove that I could do it. Because I'd only been in my job about a few months when I got pregnant, but I was already like 41. It's not like I could keep delaying it. So I felt a bit of judgment, maybe in my head or maybe not, that, okay, well, you're going to be in this job and you're going to be pregnant. That's pretty annoying. So if you're going to disappear for a while, that's going to be extra annoying. I felt a bit of that not overtly but it, I might have been making it up in my head but I didn't realise until years later when one of the people who tells you the honest things said to me I had a gallbladder right recently and I came back to work pretty quickly because frankly sometimes if you have young kids at home it's easier being in work but anyway when I came back to work quickly after my gallbladder operation somebody said to me you know people feel that you expect that of them that they have to come back quickly after maternity leave and they have to not take sick leave. Which isn't what I expect, but it's about that modeling behaviour that if you behave like that, other people expect that you expect that. And I don't. I am, when people take a year's maternity leave, I think, great, good for you, that's normal, well done. I don't think, oh, you should come back in six weeks. I never think, that. i think it was bonkers if somebody did that. But that isn't what I modelled. But nobody said it to me for years and only really in the last year
0: have I realised that only taking very short maternity leave was weird. As you know, I recently celebrated thirty years at the network and you've been in the business, you know, over twenty five and at ten, I think, over sixteen years. What's your advice to anyone listening about pursuing a career path when the only constant is change?
1: I think a lot of careers now that would be true of the only constant is change. I think probably people who are at the beginning of their career will be Different to us, in that that's all they will ever experience. So they will be so well set up for it. I think in an environment of change, you have to look for the positives. I think you have to have quite a flexible position. You have to be willing to change. If you're not that type of person that can't cope with change, you're probably not in the right business these days. It is not about just change now, as you say, it is constant change. You've got to be flexible. And also, I think you've got to give things a chance. Because people, I think human nature, people don't really like change. But sometimes
0: it's great and it can lead to amazing things. I mean, look at you. You're proof positive of that. You know, there's been a lot of tumult here as a, yeah. as a network and as a business. And yet each time you've flourished. I think... Some of the earlier changes,
1: I was a bit more resistant and nervous, but you kind of get much fit for it. <laughs> like you kind of go, okay, we've been here before, that's okay. And this the Viacom CBS merger is really exciting for us. MTV and Nickelodeon are really strong brands. They have shows that talk to an under fifties audience, which is exactly what Ten Strategy is about. So that change is great. So the changes have been good. And you just kind of have to roll with it and see what happens and be a little bit relaxed about it. And I say that, and people who know me well will probably go, that is not who you are at all, but that's who I am in my head.
0: (laughs) It may not be how I portray it. One final question, Beverly, is if I could ask you to finish this sentence for me. The Australian media landscape looks... I think it looks like it's filled with both landmines and opportunity.
1: There's lots of mistakes you can make. There's lots of potholes you can fall in. But ultimately, if you can be clever enough and have a strong enough strategy to get past all that, there's amazing opportunity. Australians want to hear Australian stories. They want to watch Australian content. They also want to watch international content, and that's great also. So I think there's an amazing opportunity for a nimble business that can deliver the best of both and be nimble about that. Beverly McGarvey,
0: thanks for your time. Thank you. You have been listening to Short Black, a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. To make sure you don't miss any of our great chats, subscribe in your favorite podcast app. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge.